You're listening to Get Fed Today, one podcast designed to provide the Christian a hearty Bible study five days a week. While our mission is to showcase a variety of different Bible teachers, if you want to access more content from a particular pastor, simply listen to the end of the episode for additional information. On behalf of the entire team at Get Fed Today, it is our prayer that today's episode encourages your growth in the grace and knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. We're going to start here in Matthew 11. I'm going to have you go a couple different places with me. I'm going to look at something a little bit topically tonight. And what I want to talk about is Jesus and failure. Uh, And when I say failure, I'm going to talk about it particularly in the context of a disciple. So uh, I just want to look at, um, when we look at disciples of Christ, you guys are out here on a Wednesday night, I'm assuming everybody here wants to grow in their faith and in their relationship with the Lord. We're all imperfect men and women following a perfect individual. So what that means is in the process, he will never mess up and we will mess up. So it's always a bit of a challenge um, to be a follower of a perfect individual. But the good thing is, I I think there's something for all of us in that. Uh, What I want to look at is a lot of times not how much or how important it is for us to see the disciples here and what they did wrong. Although I do think that's valuable. You have many Bible studies that talk about Peter and the scenario where he's walking on water and what went wrong and what we need to learn from that and how we cannot repeat those mistakes. And those are all important and wonderful But I kind of want to just take the opposite side of the coin, and we're going to look at a couple of those passages that are very familiar to us with these disciples and some of the mistakes that they made. But instead of looking at them, I want to look at Jesus. And I just want to see and walk through and take a look at how Jesus interacts with failure and what his reaction is. And then after we go through a couple of those, um, I'm just going to make a couple of applications I think we can draw from that. So we're going to begin in Matthew uh, 11 here in a moment. But first, I'm just going to mention uh, Luke 5 to you so that you have it. In Luke 5, that's where Peter really is kind of first meeting Jesus. Jesus is teaching. He hops into Peter's boat, asks, asks him to push out a little bit from the land. And uh, most of us know the story He said when he had stopped speaking to Simon, launch out into the deep and let your nets down for a catch. But Simon said to him, Master, we've toiled all night and caught nothing. Nevertheless, at your word, I will let down the net. And when he had done this, they caught a great number of fish and their net was breaking. So they signaled to their partners in the other boat to come help them. They came and filled both boats so that they began to sink. And when Simon Peter saw it, he fell down at Jesus' knees saying, depart from me. For I am a sinful man, O Lord. Uh, For he and all who were with him were astonished at the catch of fish which they had taken. Here we have Peter. This is a visceral response. I I start with that. It's in Luke. Um, I'm going to have you stay in Matthew because most of what we're going to look at is Matthew. So it's easier than you flipping everywhere. But this is right at the beginning. And I think it's important because Peter is shocked at the holiness of Christ. And particularly, these aren't just words, because of Jesus' goodness to him. He knows he's a sinful man. When he says that, he's not just saying things. He really is a sinful person. Uh, He has his own issues. And if anybody knew him, they would know those issues. This is not Peter's really a good guy and he's making something out of nothing. And Jesus, in his boat, telling him to do this after he's had nothing, and then all these fish coming in, there's this visceral response to, this is a really holy person, and I really am not even worthy of this goodness that is now being extended towards me. And the reason I think that's important is because every real follower of Jesus is going to come to disciple of Christ, scenarios where they feel like they're too sinful to be in that type of connection with Jesus. Something is going to come up, maybe something in your past, something even real, as Peter is here not making up his own sinfulness. It's a reality. 
And Jesus' response is, I think this is wonderful, do not be afraid, from now on you will catch men. He doesn't say, yeah, you're right, you are too sinful. I'm going to look for somebody else. Don't be afraid. I already know you, Peter. I'm going to turn you into something else. He doesn't deny Peter's sinfulness. He understands Peter's sinfulness. But he still calls him to follow him in that scenario. Now, in Matthew 11, here we're going to find not one of the disciples, per se, that direct group, but John the Baptist. In verse 2, it says this, when, he had, when John had heard in prison about the works of Christ, he sent two of his disciples and said to him, Are you the coming one, or do we look for another? So here is John in prison because of Herod. And he's depressed at this point. He was the person who once pointed at Jesus and said, Behold, the Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world. And he's been thrown in prison. Nothing's happening. He is discouraged to the point where he takes some of his disciples and says, Go to Jesus and ask if I had it right. Are you really the one that's supposed to come, or should we look for somebody else? He doesn't understand what Jesus is doing. Verse 4, Jesus answered and said to them, Go and tell John the things which you hear and see. The blind see, the lame walk, the lepers are cleansed, the deaf hear, the dead are raised up, and the poor have the gospel preached to him. Look at verse 6. And blessed is he who is not offended because of me. Do you ever feel offended in what Jesus is doing in your life? You will if you're a disciple of Christ. You could come to a point where you're like, I don't get what he's doing here. Is this, are you the right person? Is this the right choice? Did I do the right thing here? And Jesus' response is, blessed is he who's not offended because of me. Go tell him, remind him about the things that are happening here. And as he continues there, you'll, you'll notice if you read on, Jesus' speech then about John is very different than his speech to John. He speaks very directly to John and corrects him and his doubt there. But then when he talks about John, he tells all the people, what did you come out to see? This is the greatest prophet that's ever lived. It says some pretty remarkable things about John that I doubt John would have thought about himself right in that moment. And I think it's important to look at the way Christ deals with people who are offended at what he's doing in their life. He's not like, you don't think I'm the person anymore, John? Well, you're not a prophet anymore. So patient. Matthew 14. If you would, just flip over a little bit. This is one we know well. Matthew 14, look at verse 25. Now, in the fourth watch of the night, Jesus went to them walking on the sea. When the disciples saw him walking on the sea, they were troubled, saying, It is a ghost, and they cried out for fear. But immediately Jesus spoke to them, saying, Be of good cheer, it is I, do not be afraid. And Peter answered him and said, Lord, if it is you, command me to come to you on the water. So he said, Come. When Peter had come down out of the boat, he walked on the water to go to Jesus. When he saw that the wind was boisterous, he was afraid. And beginning to sink, he cried out, saying, Lord, save me. And immediately Jesus stretched out his hand and caught him and said, Oh, you have little faith. Why did you doubt? And when they got into the boat, the wind ceased. And those who were in the boat came and worshipped him, saying, Truly, you are the Son of God. Here we see Peter, notice this, making up his own test and failing it. He, he designed the test. You tell me to do this. Can you imagine a teacher doing this? You put this on the test and tell, right? This is, Peter's making up the test. You tell me to do it, and then he fails the test. Uh, and again, how many times have we promised Jesus something? We're going to come through on this. Lord, you do this, I'll do this. Or disciples are always making these types of scenarios uh, come about, and then we fail to come through. He doesn't fail. We fail to come through. And what is Jesus' response there to Peter? P 
Peter, I didn't create this situation. You did. Don't worry. There's towels in heaven. See you there. Right, what is it? No. His response is, he reaches down, he grabs Peter, he saves him. And you notice, again, in the perfect morality of Christ, he rebukes his little faith, but still does the miracle of saving him. He, he deals with the compassionate part of being gracious and reaching out to him, but he doesn't let sin slide. Why would you have such a little faith, Peter? You shouldn't have doubted here. Matthew 16. If you flip over. Matthew 16, verse 21. Another famous one from Peter here. Don't worry, we won't only pick on Peter, but we know this. From that time, Jesus began to show his disciples, verse 21, that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and be raised the third day. And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him, saying, Far be it from you, Lord, this shall not happen to you. But he turned and said to Peter, Get behind me, Satan. You are an offense to me, for you are not mindful of the things of God, but the things of men. And here we have Peter telling Jesus he is wrong. Uh, I think every disciple of Christ um, is going to feel like God is wrong in some scenario in their life. Some of us might even dare to tell him so. Shouldn't allow this to happen. How can this happen? Why would you let this happen? No, this is wrong. And what's Christ's response? It's a rebuke to the preservation of the self-life and an invitation to the life of carrying his cross, as he'll go into here and share, and the resurrection life beyond that. It's instruction. Not only that, Jesus is kind and understanding enough to differentiate between Peter and Satan. He doesn't say, Peter, you get behind me and never follow me again. He says, Satan, he, he can see the work of the enemy in Peter's life. He can differentiate between those two things. And he knows where to instruct the one and rebuke the other. Look at Matthew 17, verse 17. This is after the man comes with the demon-possessed son. Jesus answered and said, O faithless and perverse generation, how long shall I be with you? How long shall I bear with you? Bring him here to me. And Jesus rebuked the demon that it came out of him. And the, chi the child was cured from that very hour. And the disciples came to Jesus privately and said, Why could we not cast it out? And Jesus said to them, because of your unbelief, for assuredly I say to you, if you had faith as a mustard seed, you would say to this mountain, move from here to there, and it will move, and nothing will be impossible for you. However, this kind does not go out except by prayer and fasting. Here we see the disciples are powerless, apparently because of their unbelief, to deal with demonic, supernatural powers. Um, and every single disciple of Christ is going to come to situations in their life and following him where they recognize that they are powerless to deal with the scenario, whether it's the world or the flesh or the devil, especially in maybe some supernatural sense. But what does Christ do? Again, he rebukes their lack of faith, their unbelief. He deals with the scenario. He doesn't let it destroy them. And then he goes back and he instructs them and exhorts them to faith and prayer and fasting. Here's how you went wrong. Here's how you need to go right. And here are the things that you are missing. So patiently entering into every aspect of it. That weakness does not separate them again from him. Matthew 18, beginning in verse 1 says, at that time the disciples came to Jesus saying, who then is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? We were told in the other gospels they were walking along the way, talking, and Jesus, when they got to where they were going, said, what were you guys talking about? And they all kind of looked the other way because they were talking about who was the greatest. Jesus called a little child to him and set him in the midst of them and said, surely I say to you, unless you are converted and become as little children, you will by no means enter the kingdom of heaven. Therefore, whoever humbles himself as this little child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. 
Whoever receives one little child like this in my name receives me. And again, here we have an evidence. This is one of the times that them arguing over who was the greatest happened. And it's an evidence of their pride. Um, and all of us as disciples of Christ are going to find ourselves in scenarios where our actions and conversations are a product of pride. Even if we're talking about spiritual things. And when you're following Jesus and you want to honor him, and then you recognize, man, that was just prideful, right? What, what happens? How does Jesus respond to that? And notice, his response is instruction and this example of humility. He grabs a little child, puts the child in front of them, and instructs them on how to actually be great in the kingdom of heaven. He can... He can he doesn't quench a smoking flax, the Bible says. He can push through that the smoke of their flesh, all the wrong things there, to that live coal that's beyond it. And he knows how to blow on that and instruct it and keep it alive. The things in their life that were still imperfect, he can work through and get to the heart of the thing that was good, even though pride was masking that there. Uh, if you go to Matthew 26, please, we'll look at that. As you go there, just in the timeline, we also have Luke 9, 51 through 55, where the disciples, this is James and John. We don't just want to pick on Peter all the time. James and John literally wanted to kill people who had done them an injustice. They wouldn't let them stay in their village. And they wanted to call down fire from heaven. Uh, Do you ever find yourself being overzealous for God? Or... You wanted to do the right thing, but you discovered that you did it in the wrong way. Or you thought you were doing the right thing, and you found out afterwards that it was actually the wrong thing. That's going to happen to everybody who wants to follow Jesus. Your zeal is going to throw you into scenarios where you're like, I'm your follower, I could do this. And then you're like, I should have never done that. Or somebody more mature comes to you, and they're like, actually, you should have never ever said that. It's going to happen to everybody. What, is, what does Jesus do? He rebukes them. And he says, you do not know what manner of spirit you are of, for the Son of Man did not come to destroy men's lives, but save them. And then he gave them an example. He said, here's what we do in these scenarios where people wrong us. He went to the next village. We go to the next place. That's what we're going to do. We're not going to call down fire from heaven and kill people. That's not the spirit of what I am doing here. Instructs them again. Matthew 26 there, starting in verse 6, says this. When Jesus was in Bethany at the house of Simon the leper, a woman came to him having an alabaster flask of very costly fragrant oil. She poured it on his head as he sat at the table. When his disciples saw it, they were indignant, saying, Why this waste? For this fragrant oil must have been sold for much. And given to the poor. But when Jesus was aware of it, he said to them, Why do you trouble the woman? For she has done a good work for me. For you have the poor with you always, but me you do not have always. And here in this scene, again, the disciples get caught up in the gossip of something that actually does please Jesus. Um, you're going to find yourself being wrongly critical of times at times, of something that's actually pleasing to him, whether it's critical of someone, whether it's critical of an action. And little did they know at this point, Judas was the first one, the scriptures tell us, who criticized Mary breaking that flask and pouring it out on Jesus. And he criticized because he had the pouch with the money and he was stealing money. And they end up jumping into the criticism with the thief and the traitor instead of being on the side of the person that Jesus stands up for and says, why are you actually criticizing her? And then he blesses her with an incredible blessing that wherever anybody talks about me, the story, they're going to talk about you too. And here we are, thousands of years later, doing exactly what he said we would do. He corrects them and sets their perspective straight. Matthew 26 again, verse 36. 
they come to Gethsemane. He said to his disciples, sit here while I go and pray over there. And he took with him Peter and the two sons of Zebedee, and he began to be sorrowful and deeply distressed. He said, my soul is exceedingly sorrowful, even unto death. Stay here and watch with me. He went a little further and fell on his face and prayed, saying, oh, my father, if it is possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. Then he came to his disciples and found them sleeping, said to Peter, What, could you not watch with me one hour? Watch and pray, lest you enter into temptation. For the spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. Again, a second time he went away and prayed, saying, O my father, if this cup cannot pass away from me unless I drink it, your will be done. And he came and found them asleep again, for their eyes were heavy. So he left them and went away again and prayed a third time, saying the same words. Then he came to his disciples and said to them, Are you still sleeping and resting? Behold, the hour is at hand. The Son of Man is being betrayed into the hands of sinners. So here we have the disciples sleeping when they should be praying. I think all of us have thought about this scene. Um, What an incredible scene. Jesus here in the Garden of Gethsemane, we know, sweating great drops of blood. And here, Peter, James, and John falling asleep this night. Uh, three times he has to talk with them and he rebukes them he corrects them Peter you couldn't stay up with me one hour you better watch and pray lest you enter into temptation here's why I'm even correcting you you have to know these things you have to understand it and in the end we're told he even says the spirit is willing but the flesh is weak patient so patient with them And I think any disciple of Christ, we all understand this, is going to come to scenarios where you find yourself weak and lazy when you should be spiritually active, whether it's in prayer or whatever. That's not how I should have responded right there. That's not how I should have used my time. Or I shouldn't have given in in that scenario. Or why am I just feeding my flesh in this situation it's going to happen to every real follower of Jesus. And what, what was Jesus' response again? His response. The last one, 26, beginning in verse 45, really, when they come and they begin to take him, they are going to lay hold on him. Uh, I guess we'll start. We know Peter tries to... Uh, chop off Malchus's ear there, or doesn't try, he does. But in 55, it says this, In that hour, Jesus said to the multitudes, Have you come out as against a robber with swords and clubs to take me? I sat daily with you, teaching in the temple, and you did not seize me. But all this was done that the scriptures of the prophets might be fulfilled. Then, notice, all the disciples forsook him and fled. And here we have the betrayal, not just of Judas, but all the disciples. All the disciples at this moment turned and ran. And I have to imagine that that moment was very difficult for them. You would have to even think, remember, they didn't know Judas was the traitor. They see Judas there. They recognize what's happening. Maybe they're even scared of one another at that point. Is there another traitor? Is somebody else in this? What's happening You have to imagine there's a certain amount of questioning going on in their mind, even in their interactions with another. Trust has to be broken in some ways. And they all turn and run. All of them leave Jesus Christ. And I think we're all going to have scenarios where we run from a situation, from standing up with Christ when we should have been with him. Maybe some of us literally just betray Christ. We just know. We just totally... We're supposed to be a Christian, and we just totally ruined our testimony. Or we've even denied that we were a Christian in scenarios. Or we've lived the type of life where we forsook Christ, we've gone away for a time. We're just ignoring that he was ever a part of our life. And what is Christ's response in all that? We know, does he come back and throw their betrayals in their face? He actually told them ahead of time they were going to do it. 
Now, he didn't have to do that, you know. But the reason he did that is so that they would know he already knew we were going to betray him. And he called us. And he walked with us. And he taught us. He knew, he knew that from the very beginning. He warned them that this was going to be a part of what was happening. So there are certainly other scriptures that we can turn to and look at. But I just want to make um, a couple applications now, having looked at Christ there. The first one is this. Um, in all these scenarios, we see that Jesus allows imperfect disciples to continue to follow him. That is part of the program. That he allows for failures in the process of discipleship. In fact, it is part of the process. Our failures, our weaknesses, don't break our covenant with him. I'm in a marriage covenant. My weaknesses and my wife's weaknesses, my failures and my wife's failures, don't break our covenant. There's all types of failures all the time. Every day, small, little ones, here and there. We let one another down. We're two imperfect people. But that doesn't break the covenant. doesn't destroy the marriage. And am I a more loving husband than Jesus Christ is? God forbid. No. And he has brought you and I into a covenant with himself. And within that covenant, there is space for our weaknesses, for our failures. It's a part of it. They, they continued to follow him, and they were assured of their salvation and their life in him. Even one time they come back, having been sent out to preach the gospel, and they come back with stories, excited, glad. They say, even the spirits were subject to us. And Jesus says, don't, don't rejoice in this, that the spirits are subject to you. Rejoice that your names are written in heaven. The covenant is sealed. Like the, the production that you have, the service, those things are nice. But take joy in this, not just in your performance, but in the covenant that they had with him at that moment, still imperfect followers. And I think what that tells us is true followers of Christ, they allow Jesus to lead them. Discouragement or despair in following Christ doesn't come from Jesus. Do you notice that? Nowhere along the line, Jesus was not the one discouraging them. Their faults were made manifest as they walked with a perfect person, but he, he didn't discourage them. Any discouragement or uh, just total despair that we find in following Jesus in our own discipleship and walk with him comes from our own pride or from Satan, period. God the Father pities us, the Bible says, as a father pities his own children. The Holy Spirit helps us in our infirmities. And Jesus Christ, what we see here, chooses and calls those he plans to patiently walk with and conform into his own image and likeness. It's, it's part of the plan. So if we get discouraged, if we see our own faults, if they're made manifest, and we start to feel like not following him anymore or creating distance, that's either our own pride or condemnation from the enemy. Because Jesus never pushes them away. You notice that. Never once. All he does is continue to encourage them in the process. And is there anything he's not sufficient for? You're like, man, I'm too big of a mess up for Jesus to change. Really? You're not following much of a God then. Oh, are we worse than these individuals were here? Certainly not. Jesus calls imperfect disciples to continue to follow him. If you allow him to, he will willingly step into your life and work to conform you, just like he did with them. Patiently, thoroughly. He won't force you to. You notice, even the remarkable things he did, he never once made a claim on the people that he interacted with. 
When he healed them, he didn't say, now you have to follow me. When he mended them or he freed them from demons or he brought people back from the dead, he didn't say, okay, I brought you back from the dead, now you have to follow me. But as they willingly walked with him, he changed them. The Bible says you and I are allowed to walk in the light and the blood of Jesus will cleanse us from all sin. He has made full provision for any single person in this room to walk with him despite our imperfections. We can walk in the light and have fellowship with him and the blood of Jesus will cleanse us from all sin. Important. He calls imperfect disciples to follow him. The second thing we see is we see the good in Jesus is constantly overcoming the evil that we find in these guys. The idea, again, is when weak faith appealed to Jesus, he granted the request, but he rebuked the weakness. His perfect pity and compassion never lowered the principles or the truth that he interacted with. We, we sometimes have the opposite. People present Jesus as a person who just blows off sin and doesn't really care about it, or a person who's too holy that he can't interact with any sin. That was the Pharisee's idea. If he knew what type of woman this is, he would never let her touch him. And Jesus is actually neither of those, because he's totally grace and totally holiness, and his grace doesn't ignore his holiness. So his holiness rebukes the sin in every scenario correctly. He does not let it slide. But his grace and his compassion also meet them in those scenarios. Peter, I won't let you drown, but I'm going to rebuke your weak faith. Lord, I believe, help my unbelief. He cast out the demon, but he rebuked the weakness of the faith. Yeah, you guys are going to continue to serve me. But no, you're not going to call down fire from heaven and kill people. There's, in every single scenario, Jesus was constantly dealing with the sin in the proper way that affected him or was around him in the world. He was pure and holy and 100%, this is hard to imagine, constantly daily in conflict with the sin of those surrounding him and following him. It's hard to imagine to be a perfect person in a world. And we, we think of Jesus, right? he had the flannel gram Jesus in like children's ministry, he put it up on the board, and he's all nice and clean, and the crowd is all nice and clean. But again, the pictures we have in the scripture, who, who are the people following Jesus? The Pharisees who are always there just trying to watch him mess up or do something wrong or say something wrong. Demon-possessed people, sick people, people that are just there for a show. The crowd that followed him was a crowd of people you would not want following you to work. Or you wouldn't want to get on a septa bus with these people. That's the whole point. You get on the bus and you would walk back out. You're like, I don't want to be around this crowd. And that was the crowd of people that was constantly with Jesus. Needy, difficult, hurting, sinful people. And the amazing thing is, he just constantly, with graciousness and gentleness and courage, ceaselessly overcame the evil that was in the world with the good in him. Righteous through and through. Who, it's so hard to imagine the weight of it. Mark twice tells us he sighs. There's a, there's a sigh in Jesus Christ when he's dealing with infirmities or the Pharisees are again coming and asking to him, asking him first, okay, show us a sign. After all the miracles he did, he sighs in his spirit. How long am I going to be with you, you faithless generation? And even in that, his sigh doesn't make him finally say, okay, I'm done now. I'm done now. I'm tired of this. The program's over. Your sin is constantly pressing me. This is what we do. We break down as, as holy or righteous as the most holy righteous person in this room is. There's a point where enough is enough. Right? You were doing all right. You dealt with your kids. You dealt with your spouse. You're okay at work. And then somebody just says something or 
another person calls or there's another scenario where a needy person is, you know, knocking at your door or interacting with you. And there's always a place where everybody finds their end. The righteousness that's in me has nothing left to meet the difficulty of the world with. There's an end to that. Jesus never had an end. The incredible thing is that his hatred of sin never turned to the hatred of our persons or his own sons and daughters. He loved his disciples till the end. His righteousness, his sanctity strengthened the disciples and it helped them literally to subdue their own iniquities. Now, again, I'm not in this scenario, right? People can, again, they can begin to take this and, and they, they can abuse it. I'm not talking about the person who's trying to follow God, says they're a follower of the Lord, and they're just constantly given over to sin. I'm just going to live in adultery, and I know God will follow, forgive me at the end. That's not who we're talking about here. We're talking about these disciples who really want to follow Jesus. They're doing their best here, but they're weak. They have their mistakes. And I think the, the real saint, the person who wants to be a disciple of Jesus, they see the good in Christ like these guys did. They want that. They're aiming for it. And the good that they want, they might fall short of at times, but they love it. And the sin that they end up in, they hate. But there's this constant desire. They love Jesus, even though he had to correct them, even though they had, they, he confused them at times, even though they gave up so much to follow him, they loved him, and they loved the good they saw in him, and they loved the good that they saw was working in their own hearts and lives. And even though they fell short of it, they were still pressing towards that, right? That's the disciple of Christ. That's who we're talking about. The hypocrite is the person who does good but doesn't even love it. They do the religious thing because they have to. It's a show. It's a pretense. If I don't go to church, people will notice I'm not there. If I don't do this, my spouse will say something to me. They do the religious thing because they have to, but really they love sin. And even if they can't do sin because they're withheld from it because there's some boundary or because they know somebody will see them or they're afraid to step out, there's still a heart that loves sin in them and they're not a real follower of him. The picture here is, this is a person who loves Jesus Christ and they're pressing towards him. And they're going to find their defects because he's perfect and it's a part of the process. But what will happen is the good news is that those who follow Jesus, even though we fall short, he never falls short in dealing with it. He daily warned, he taught, he rebuked, he instructed he condemned, he suffered, yet he never gave up on them. He never got tired of them. He never sent them away. His rebukes never darkened his heart of love. Like, if I have to rebuke you again, then that's it. Or he started to have a bad attitude towards Thomas. Because Thomas, you're just kind of a downer. Right Now, that's us. We get in the group. You know, there's people that are easier to hang out with. Ah, oh, it's great to be with this person. And then, you know, you, you can act lovingly towards a person or Christian towards a person a certain amount. And then what happens is we start to run out of goodness. Jesus never ran out. His good was never overcome by evil. He's an eternal fountain of good. And that was constantly his answer for evil. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. Jesus was the perfect example of that. The good in him just kept constantly overcoming the evil in them. I don't know about you, but that gives me hope. He is a ceaseless fountain of that pouring out into our lives. And you know, when we see our defects, we have to run to him because of that. Fenelon would say, the humiliation we feel about our own defects can often be a greater fault than the original defect itself if it keeps you from moving into the realization of God's love. Do our failings keep us from pressing into him? 
Some people, they don't want their evil to be shown. And you can't hang out with a perfect person very long without realizing you're imperfect. But if you love the good you see in him, you'll be happy to have him wash over you of that, conform you in his image, into his likeness. That's why we pick up our Bibles. That's why we go to church. That's why we seek to be with him. That's why people begin to hunger and thirst for righteousness because even though there's faults in us, he just constantly overcomes it. And he's never tired of doing it. And he never looks and then says, you know what, that son or daughter of mine, I don't think I have anything left for them. We never see that in Jesus. Every single minute of every single day, this perfect person was in conflict with the sin all around them, and he constantly overcame that with his goodness. And the last thing that we see that I think is, again, extremely important is simply this, that Jesus is the same yesterday, today, and forever. At the end of it all, what do we see after his resurrection? At this point, the disciples and Jesus are further apart than they've ever been. The, the scene has ended with them all running away and Jesus being taken away by a traitor in their own midst. And we know John and Peter kind of try to follow, but we know what happens with Peter. And John at least traces him to the cross. And as far as we know, all the rest of them have run away. Jesus has gone through the most horrific death possible for them. Now he's resurrected and glorious. He's a possessor of all power and authority in heaven and earth. But what are them? What are they at this point? One was a traitor. The others had forsaken him. They're hiding in unbelief. We know they're in an upper room. They're weak, fearful, doubtful followers of Jesus Christ. Forgot his words. They're all hiding together somewhere. If there was a time that the discipleship was over, this would be it. I, Jesus had walked with you for three years. I was correcting you. I was patient with you. I was overcoming your evil with good. And, and when it came to the climax, you betrayed me and you forsook me. And now he's glorified, revealed, resurrected as who he is. What a gap. I don't think we can even understand this. What a huge gap between creator and creation. Dust and glory. Infinite perfection and sinful humanity. If there was a time that discipleship was over, this was it. Never has it been further. And what do we see? The resurrected Jesus Christ. What do we see from him when he shows up with Mary Magdalene? He's the same. Cleopas and his friend walking on the road patiently rebuking their unbelief, teaching them his word, walking with them, revealing himself. What do we see with Thomas? Thomas, who's standing in the room, I'm not going to believe it when the other guys tell him, unless the Lord shows up himself. Unless I could put my finger in the nail marks, my hand in his side. What does Jesus do? Shows up. He said to Thomas, reach your finger here. And look at my hands. Reach your hand here and put it into my side. Do not be unbelieving, but believing. Thomas said, my Lord and my God. So patient. Peter, we know what happens. Right? You ever feel like you're a disciple and it's hard to believe Jesus? You begin to doubt the things that you know are true? What does he do? Resurrected, shows back up. You doubt, Thomas? I can appear into a locked room and meet your doubts. Secret places of your own heart and mind and meet your doubts. You still my disciple? Still willing to learn? 
still willing to follow me, still be willing to be conformed in my image and likeness. What about you, Peter? Do you love me more than these? Do you agape me more than these? You know, I phileo you, a lesser love. And feed my sheep. Peter, do you love me more than you agape me again, Peter? I phileo you. And the third time he asked him, and Peter responds again, he says, Peter, do you phileo me? Comes down to Peter's level. Peter says, Lord, you know all things. You know that I phileo you. He didn't feel like he could reach up after that failure of his. There was a time where I thought I could say I got paid you, or I'd give my life for you. Now I realize I'm a failure, not what I thought I was. You know what Jesus says? I'll meet you there, Peter. You don't love me as you wish that you could. If you're a disciple of Jesus Christ, you know where you're going to come to in your life. You're going to come to places where you wish I could love you the way you deserve of being loved. And you know what Jesus is going to say? I'll meet you there. I'll meet you there. I got more for you. I'm going to keep calling you up, but I'll meet you right where you're at. Who? What do we see from him? We see that he's the same yesterday, today, and forever resurrected, glorified. He was their companion in his humility, and he remains their companion in his glory. He says, I will never leave you or forsake you. Lo, I'm with you always, even until the end of the age. Nothing in heaven and earth can separate us from him, his love, his patience, his long-suffering, his power, his wisdom, his goodness. You and I walk with the same Jesus they walked with before and after his resurrection. If it would have changed, it would have changed for them. If things would have been different, if there was a time for discipleship to end, it would have ended for them. But it didn't. Jesus was the same. And he said, I'm never going to leave you. And I'm going to be the same. That should give you hope if you're a person who wants to walk with Jesus and love him. That should give you great hope. He is the same. But maybe I should ask you this. Is that the Jesus that you walk with? The Jesus that we see here in the scripture? The Jesus that they knew before and after his death? Is that the Jesus that you and I walk with? Because perhaps you've made up your own harder, less divine version of Jesus to follow. Or maybe somebody skewed your mind and you follow an impatient and unloving Jesus. Or a Jesus who's all grace and no correction. Or a Jesus who's all correction and no grace instead of the Jesus who is full of grace and truth in every scenario, the real Jesus. You and I, we can't have hard thoughts about him. We have to go back to who he actually is, see him as he is. We need confidence in the character of the one that we're following, confidence in his revealed mercy and goodness, confidence night and day, because we're going to need it, because we're imperfect sons and daughters. But the great thing is we follow a perfect Savior. And he knows exactly how to meet us in all of those situations. Don't allow the enemy to skew your view of who Jesus actually is. Richard Sibbs would say, in the time of temptation, believe Christ rather than the devil. Believe truth from truth itself. Listen not to a liar, an enemy, and a murderer. So what are we to do? I think what we do is we stop looking at ourselves so much. Because the more you look at yourself, the more you're bound to find mistakes. 
That doesn't mean there's not healthy looking at yourself. You're going to look at yourself when Jesus points you out to you. Uh, and you're going to look at yourself clearly when that happens, right? Peter thought he knew himself. And then Jesus let Peter know who he actually was. But Peter was able to change because of that. There's, there's a healthy way to look at ourselves when Jesus shows us who we actually are. But if we simply look at the one we're following, what we're going to find is all the consolation we need, all the hope we need, all the patience we need, all the love we need, all the sufficiency we need. We're supposed to look to Jesus, the author and the finisher of our faith. And when we look at him, man, it's a beautiful thing to look at. As he interacts constantly with patience and purpose, endless goodness to overflow and wash away and purify the evil in us and around us. And the same Jesus yet glorified and with us. Let's stand. Um, you know, again, I think for those of us who want to be disciples of his and walk with him and honor him, these things should be encouraging to us, wonderful reminders of who he is. Again, I would say if you're here, you know, I don't, I don't, not everybody might be from this fellowship or maybe you come from somewhere where you received the skewed version of Jesus Christ. You need to look at the scripture and let him reveal himself to you personally because he is perfect and nothing you see there will push you away from him. If you see it in truth, will draw you to him, who he is. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we just come before you and we thank you that you are the same yesterday, today, and forever. We thank you that you have called us to be your sons and daughters and you set us free to know you and to serve you and to walk with you. And we thank you, Lord, that you are still the same. You're as patient and loving and perfect as we see you with your disciples. And Lord, I just pray that you would reveal yourself to each of us here as you know we need. Um, I'm sure it's a little different in every life here. But you promise that through your Holy Spirit, you'll take the things that are yours and reveal them to us. And that you'll guide our fallible hearts and minds into all truth. So we just ask, give us your spirit to know you and walk with you. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to Get Fed Today. Today's sermon comes from Pastor Mike Foch. If you enjoyed the message, you can access more of Pastor Mike's teaching ministry by visiting ccphilly.org.